What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. What would you do if you knew you would succeed? Or in other words, if failure was not possible, what type of things would you try? This question transformed the life of today's guest, Croy Sather. From carpenter to world record athlete, Croy is a global leader in personal life transformation. In today's episode, he shares his strategies for extreme transformation to create a life that you truly love with wealth and happiness that you deserve. Known as the Marathon Man, Croy went from a non-runner to completing 100 marathons in 100 days, taking him from California to New York. And if that's not impressive enough, he also gave an inspirational speech at every stop along the way. Croy teaches us how to harness our mind to get results bigger, faster, and easier through mastering our inner power and finding our purpose. Please welcome to the Right Place Right Now podcast, Croy Sather. Well, before we get into our conversation today, if you like what you're hearing and you haven't done so yet, please go to our homepage and leave us a review and a positive rating. It's the most effective way that you can help us get our message out there and reach more awesome people like you. The Marathon Man, Croy, thanks for joining us today. Excited to have you. Really want to get into your story. First question I have is, you, sir ran a hundred marathons in a row. Can I just start with why would you put yourself through that? That's usually the most important question. But the two fun questions are actually how many sneakers did I go through? So that was 16 pairs. And then how much did I eat? I was eating almost 10,000 calories a day. So I was eating anything and everything that wasn't nailed down. Um, but the important question is always why. And that's after the, the fun questions are is always why. And the, the short answer is, is that if you want to be great, anybody that you study, you listen to biographies, anybody that has, has a great life, that has accomplished something amazing, uh, has, um, is very wealthy or great at acting, great at whatever business they're in, it's always because they chose to do that. They chose to be great. So the short answer is I was living an ordinary life and I didn't want to be ordinary. So I, I chose to be great. And so I was asking myself the question of what would you do if you knew you would succeed? Because I had read that over and over in modern books and, and uh, books from, from uh, wisdom from years and years ago, you know, uh, centuries ago. And everybody was asking the same question. What would you do if you knew you would not fail? And so I had heard about a guy who ran across America. I'm like, that's the coolest thing I have ever heard. I've got to do it. Except I wasn't a runner at the time. And so I go and I tell my family and I tell my friends. And of course, what do you think they all said? Why would you do this? <laughs> <laughs> they said, you're crazy, you're stupid, and it's impossible. But it clearly wasn't impossible because somebody else had done it. Maybe it was a little bit crazy, um, but it was something that really inspired me. So I started running and with one year of training, I was in California running a marathon a day for 100 consecutive days back home towards New York. Wow. So I, I love the, the fun questions because I didn't even think to ask about 16 pairs of shoes, the logistics, how are you eating every day? Because I've done, I'm four marathons deep, 
over five years and what your body goes through. If I guess you went into this not really understanding some of those repercussions. Did you run a marathon beforehand in your training? How deep did you get into your miles? What did that entail? One of the lessons for success is find somebody who's done what you want to do and go get coached by them. Go ask questions. Go research what they did. And so running one marathon like you have is one strategy. Running one marathon a day is a radically different strategy. So the idea is at the end is to have as much energy left over, enough fuel in the tank at the end of the day so that I could go do it again the next day. So the guy that I had heard about running across America, he happened to be coming to New York to do a, to do a running clinic. And so my friend told me about it. I didn't know. Uh, so my friend told me about it. And then so I go and hire this guy to coach me. And he, he actually coached me for free. I hired him to, to do the clinic, but then he coached me for free after that. And so I learned the strategies of doing that. And so I went from zero, literally running like a mile or two a day, which was my pre, you know, that was my training regimen at that line, so my, uh, time. So I wasn't a runner to doing what he said to get to a marathon a day in under a year. So it was actually, it was only nine months of training if you want to be technical. And I did one marathon in that time. That was it. I did one official marathon. Wow. So this, I love this because this really sets up what, what this podcast is about. And it's about putting yourself in the right place at the right time and being intentional so that you can accomplish those goals. So you set this crazy goal of running across America, your family's already pushing back and you knew that you didn't have the tools or the strategy in place. So you had to go and find that. And by putting yourself in that seminar, you found the resources and everything you needed to be successful in this. Generally speaking, yes. So here's a couple of things that happen when, when you set your mind on a goal, like, like something big like this, whatever it is, and you start taking action towards it, the universe aligns to make it happen. It'll conspire to make it happen. And, you know, I started telling people what I was going to do. And, you know, one friend tells me about Stu, who was holding the running clinic. Another person told me about a media company to hire to help arrange because I, I spoke every day as well. I gave an inspirational speech each day to different at-risk groups, so wounded warriors, addiction centers, homeless shelters, prisons, things like that. So I was connected with the, the company to, to book all of these speaking events and the company to book all of the TV and radio and all those. And then a person for um, sneakers and a person for this and a person for that. Once I started telling everybody I was doing it and I started taking massive action, people just found me and they wanted to help and they offered you know, either for free or discounted rates or connecting me with somebody I needed to be connected with. And so it all just sort of happens when you have this goal. And, and because what happens is your energy to, to not get woo-woo, I'm not going to get woo-woo on you at all. <laughs> but, but when you choose something amazing, your energy and focus towards that thing becomes so strong that other things can't help but to be attracted towards it. So people, places, things, whatever you need. And so that's the power of success is so somebody wants to become a millionaire and they dig down hard and they eliminate virtually everything other than becoming a millionaire, they become a millionaire in very short time. If you want to lose weight, you want to, I've known a lot of people who have lost a hundred pounds in less than a year because that became their primary goal. And that was what they, they wanted to accomplish. Losing weight is relatively easy. The hard part is getting the mindset lined up to make that happen or the mindset to line up to be a millionaire or the mindset to have a great loving relationship or the mindset to be a great podcaster, great author, great manager, great, whatever you want to be. It's all about having that alignment to it. So with, with that, I, that can't come without its challenges though. Like it, just because you align yourself with it and, and that's all good. 
it can't be easy though all the time there uh, did you have any challenges or roadblocks along that training path or along the path to, to do the marathon and if you did how did you deal with those and, and overcome those there's, there's always going to be challenges in life whether you're going for a great big massive goal or you're just living an ordinary life you're going to have challenges but when you're going for these bigger goals whether it's a life transformation or a business thing or, or personal whatever it is there's going to be uh, challenges in that too, but those challenges are bringing you towards becoming a greater person and accomplishing something greater. So those challenges will make you stronger and those challenges will make you better for not only the goal you're, you're working on, but the next one that comes after that. So yeah, there's always challenges, not physical challenges. Certainly those are brutally painful at times, especially when I started getting up there in miles and started for the first time in my life hitting 15 miles, 20 miles, 25 miles and hitting those kinds of distances physically was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And so I would go and run, uh, the, you know, a longer distance and I'd have to basically be on the couch the next day. So luckily I worked from a laptop so I could lay down <laughs> on the laptop. <laughs> and, and so that was the physical challenges, but there was the mental challenges on, um, you know, how do, how do you get motivated to go run another, you know, 10 miles today, 15 miles today? How do you do that again? And that was the, probably the biggest, the hardest part is the mental challenge of it. Yeah. What, so what about you and your background? Because before this, right, is this as you were the couch potato? Was this the first run or was this after your desert run? No, this was the run across America was before the world record in Death Valley. Okay. So you, you literally just kind of rolled off the couch and decided I'm going to do this. And then you obviously went through a bunch of work to get there. But what about you says one, I'm going to set this audacious goal that is huge. That's important to me to do something great. And then still find the motivation in those moments that whenever your body hurts and you're three or four days in, you have blisters and you're just, if you've ever run, you know, that there's some really uncomfortable pieces to that. How do you just motivate yourself at the simplest level? When you set a goal big enough that inspires you, you'll find a way to get through these things. So, for example, somebody who goes to the doctor, um, you know, take an example of a 50-something-year-old man, goes to the doctor, and he's about to have a heart attack, he can't breathe, and the doctor's got to do quadruple bypass on him to save his life. That guy all of a sudden has motivation because, you know, all of a sudden I'm not going to be around for my daughter's wedding. I'm not going to be around for helping my son and go to college and things like that. And all of a sudden he's motivated to make it happen. So that guy goes on a diet and he loses a bunch of weight. He becomes a runner and does or whatever he's going to do. And he loses weight. When you're inspired like that, when you have enough motivation, enough why, you'll find a way to make it happen. So if you're, if you're doing something in your life and you don't have that why, you don't have the inspiration, is that a good indicator that maybe you're not in the right place? That's a fantastic indicator, yeah. If, you, if you're not motivated to get up and work and push through things, then you're in the wrong field, you're with the wrong people, you're in the wrong place, or something's going on that, that you need to make a massive shift. Yeah, and I would say that's probably a good majority of people what would you recommend to somebody who finds himself in that place that just says, you know, I, I want more than this, but I don't know what that is? What I did, because that was me. I was a carpenter for 20 years. I started at, at 15 years old being a carpenter, just like my dad and my brother and my uncles and my grandfather. We were all in the trade. And so what did I do? I became a carpenter too. And I was good at it. And financially, it was good for me too. I did better than my dad ever did in his life and was running a company by the time I was 24 but it wasn't my purpose. And so I started experimenting with things. I started writing books. I wasn't a writer. I barely graduated high school, fairly 
finished English to graduate high school. And so, you know, I had to learn how to become a writer. Then I had to learn how to become a speaker. And I tried all kinds of different businesses. I had dozens of businesses I tried on the side. I had a little side hustle going on. Most of them were utter failures. A couple of them worked out okay. And then eventually I figured out that when I went to a, a speaking event and there was a motivational speaker up there and a bunch of other speakers, it was one of these multi-speaker event weekends. And I went up there and I'm watching these guys. I'm like, you know, this is pretty cool. I didn't know speaking was even a job. I had no idea because the only person I ever saw speak in front of an audience was my dad. He was a pastor. And so I had no idea this was actually a job. <laughs> and so I see the third guy that comes up there and he talks, starts talking about, you know, you can create the life you want and you have a personal power and you have this and that. And he's like, I'm like, yes, that's me. I want this. And not only I want this, I want to be that guy. You know, I want not that guy, but like that guy. And that's when I found my calling. That's when I found my purpose when I went to that three-day speaking event in uh, Boston, Boston, uh, Massachusetts. I have a similar story to that. I was an electrician for 10 years and I knew there was more to life than that. And uh, I started homebrewing on a whim and I'm, I'm six years into owning a brewery now. And we've, we've gone from like $100,000 a year to this last year we did 1.3 million. So uh, similar Holy story, God, yeah, a similar story to that. So uh, that, that's really encouraging to hear, uh, you know, somebody else has kind of walked that path. I know a lot of people who have had, that have gone through a, a really big transformation like that. They were always doing something else that was, uh, yeah, it was probably okay, or maybe it wasn't okay, because I know a lot of people were doing some really cruddy things. But then they made the transformation. They found what it was. And it usually happens somewhere in your 30s, late 30s and 40s. That's when people start like, you know what? I want more than this. But you don't know what it is. <laughs> You're pointing to yourself. You know? Yeah. Like, but, but most people don't know what it is. Go ahead. No, I was just saying preach. I'm, I'm following. <laughs> and so and that, that's what my big thing was. When I first became a speaker and an author, and you know, I had to go through a bunch of evolutions to figure out my voice. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an evolution. That's all it is. And you got to get out there. You got to do a lot of things. I failed really bad. I bombed some really big speeches in front of big audiences for big money. And I bombed them. And I felt like crap when I got done with it because I didn't do my job. I didn't show up the way I was supposed to for different reasons. But then I've had other ones that I've absolutely crushed. But in that process, that evolution, I had to find my voice. And one of the things that I figured out going through this is that when I've tried to do things small and why I've watched other people do things small and I've coached clients who want to take the safe route in doing it, you almost never succeed when you take the safe route. You, you've got to burn the ships. You've heard of, of uh, what's his name, Cortez, Hernan Cortez. You know, that famous story where he gets his men off the ship into the Mayan Mexican coastline and then he burns the ships and he says, we're going to either win or we're going to perish. And those are my words, not his. I, I don't know what he actually said because I don't speak that kind of Spanish. And <laughs> what he said to that extent was he burnt the ships and says, we'll succeed or we'll, or we'll die. And that's almost the kind of things you got you to gotta do if you're going to create that big transformation. And I know a lot of people say, oh, that's irresponsible. You're telling me I got to quit my job or I got to leave my marriage or I got to do this or that. And if you really want a transformation, yes, you do. Otherwise, you're going to stay stuck. You're going to stay miserable. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be overwhelmed. You're never going to make the money you want. You're never going to be happy like you want. You need to make a transformation. Fix what you got or, or transform. I love that. And I want to get back to kind of your genesis here because you, you touched on before you started all this and you had this awesome goal, this pulling purpose to run across America because it was so exciting for you. You said you were already running the family company at a very young age. Like you were an inspired and motivated individual. Is that always been inside of you? 
even at your youngest? Um, sort of, sort of. Uh, I'm just as lazy as I am motivated. <laughs> All right, let's get into that a little. It's this weird dichotomy I still have till today. You know, when I find something I really like or want or enjoy, blinders, you, you can't stop me from wanting to do it like every moment of my life. But when I don't want to do something, I'll do everything but that thing that I, that I need to do. So I, I go through stages even now of being lazy and, and not, not doing any significant work. But then I'll go through seasons of being extremely motivated. And so uh, like the 100 day run across America, I think 60 to 90 days is a perfect transformation period, even 30 days, 30, 60 or 90 days, perfect transformation periods because it's short enough to do something great. It's long enough to do something great. It's short enough to stay motivated and to stay clear on your goals. But to answer your question, um, I guess the best way to answer it is, is by telling you the story of when I was 14 years old and I'm riding home on my bicycle. I'm with a couple of buddies. We're riding home on our bicycle. I'm on the right side of the road driving with traffic like you're supposed to. My buddies are on the other side of the road, but they're off on the shoulder. So they're not on the road or anything. And we're coming up to a crest of the hill and this drunk driver comes barreling over the hill towards my friends. And she sees them and she swerves, you know, doing the smart thing, doesn't want to hit the kids. And she crosses over the double yellow line and she never sees me. And she crushes into my bicycle at full speed without ever hitting her brakes. My bike goes below her bumper. I land onto her windshield, and I go flying up into the air. The police report said that my body flew 50 feet before it came crashing to the ground. Wow. So they rushed me to the local hospital. The hospital couldn't handle the trauma injury, so they sent me down to New York City. And in New York City, they worked on me for hours. And the neurosurgeon that, that came, when my parents got there, the neurosurgeon came out and told my parents, if your son survives the night, he'll be a vegetable for the rest of his life. So those were, those were the terminology they used back then, you know. So in other words, I, I wouldn't be able to be mentally functional like a normal person. And so I was in the coma for four days. I was in the hospital for two weeks. And then I was in physical rehabilitation for a year, learning how to walk and do all the things you got to do like a normal person. When I was in the hospital and I came out of the coma, my parents would tell me, like, you survive for a reason. My dad was a preacher, so very, you know, gospel-like. And he's like, God saved you. You're here for a reason. <laughs> and he'd go into his sermons on me. <laughs> and, of course, my mom was saying the same thing. And so I believed that. I believed that I was there for a reason. But I didn't know why. I didn't know what. But the other thing I got from it was a life philosophy. is like, oh, my God, I could have died. I should have died. There's no medical reason why I'm alive. So... If life is that precious, why not make the best out of this life? Why not have an extraordinary life? You know, what kid do you know? Any kid, do you know any kid that says, you know what? I want to grow up. I want to get a corporate job. I want to really hate the job. And I want to be broken behind on my bills. And I want to be in a really cruddy, divorce, uh, cruddy marriage so to one day end up in a divorce. How many kids do you know say that? No, nobody says it, but everybody does it. <laughs> most, I can't say most. Many, many people do it. Because we buy into this concept, even from we're little kids, you know, our teachers, our parents always tell us, you know, be reasonable. You know, don't, don't toot your own horn. You know, they'll be nice to the other kids. You know, don't like if you're really good at baseball or, or singing or whatever, you know, don't show off. And so since we're a child, we're taught that we get into the corporate world or we get into the business world. And if you're too good, the managers might get, get nervous and they might fire you or give you a hard time. Um, and if you, you, if you become too successful in one way, other competition might try to come get you. So the life always is trying to 
I don't want to say beat you down because that's not really, that's a negative way of looking at it, but there's always challenges. It's to protect you, right? It's to don't put yourself out there because it could hurt. So just stay here, True. stay safe. Don't, don't expose yourself because it could be bad. What if, what if it's bad? I think a lot of people ask what if with a fear-based mindset and say like, what, what if it goes wrong? But if we ask it with a, a what if it goes right mindset, that changes the game. Yeah, absolutely. It's instead of saying, what if, what if, what if I lose everything? What if I start the business and it fails? What if I start dating again after divorce and I meet another jerk? You know, what if, what if I was saying, what if I become very successful in business and I become wealthier than I ever imagined? What if I leave this horrible, toxic divorce of marriage and I go for, and I end up finding the love of my life, the soulmate that I'm ridiculously happy that it almost doesn't seem real. What if I move from the place that I'm at and I go find another city. As we were talking about offline right before we got on online, once things start opening up again, I'm going to start traveling across America looking for a city I like more than where I'm at. And then I'm going to find a city in another country. And so my goal is, one of my life goals is to have four homes, four different countries, four different languages. And so that I could spend a little bit of time in each one. I love that. And I, one of the things that in my story is I backpack Europe for like 90 days kind of in my mid transition between college and what I decided to do at this stage of my life. And one of the things I, I always tell people is when you get to touch other cultures and engage with other people on a personal level on their turf, it's so inspiring and eye opening. What is it for you? Because you've been living in and out of Colombia for a while. And then you have this goal to live in all these, these different countries, different languages. What does that do for you? What do you find that that feeds in you? So a little bit of backstory to that was that when I started, I never traveled when I was younger because it wasn't my family thing. We never left anywhere. It would, if we couldn't get there in a car, we wouldn't go there. We could get on planes. And so when I became, uh, I don't know, my late 20s, and I started traveling by scuba diving, which that led to some other trips, and that led to some other countries. And eventually I was like, well, let me go try an extended stay uh, at another country. So I went and lived in Costa Rica for a few weeks. I was like, wow, that was really cool. So I went back to Costa Rica for a couple of times. And then I decided to try another place. So I moved to Colombia on a whim because a, a friend that I trusted, his opinion, told me that Medellin, Colombia is the most beautiful city in all of South America. So I, I went there and I, I jumped on a plane. And for six months, I'm, I'm sorry, for six weeks, I went to live there. And I figured worst case scenario is I'll come back to the USA if I don't like it. And so what do I have to lose? And I got there and immediately when I got off the plane, I fell in love with it. The energy was right for me. The people were right for me. The city is amazingly beautiful. And Colombians are some of the friendliest people on the entire planet that I've met yet. And so living there and living in the U.S., I go back and forth for a few years. Um, I discovered, and, and other countries as well, actually, I would bounce around for a while. And so what I discovered is that no matter what country, no matter what culture, what religion, or wherever, whatever supposedly makes us different is all bull. It's all BS. We all want to be happy. We all want to have some, you know, money and food and, you know, enough to be comfortable that way. And we all want to love and be loved. And probably most importantly, we all want to know that our life here meant something. You know, we were great parents. We, were, we accomplished something, whatever. We need to belong to something knowing that it was a purpose here. And we all want these same exact things, no matter regardless of where you live or who you are or what you believe. All want the same thing. And I also learned that, that when traveling is that my world used to be so small, so tiny. I had no idea how big the world was. Not, not just physically big, but how big it is in terms of 
the differences in the way people live, the, the kind of geography that people live in, you know, cold, hot, mountains, flat, on islands, you know, all these different things. And I realized that this world is just mind-blowingly beautiful to experience. And that's why I want to live in a few different places. So to, to pull this back to your story and kind of the genesis before you run across America, what were, as you were running and trying to get those hundred marathons in a hundred days, get to New York, when you're beating those miles, your mind's got to be running. What are some personal evolutions you had, or was that even a personal evolution for you during that time? So some more fun facts. People like to ask, what do I think about when I run? And for the first, especially back then when I was doing these super long distances, maybe the first two hours would be creative. I'd think about work. I would think about life. I would think about, you know, whatever was going on in my life at that particular time. And then from two to four hours was more kind of a meditative thing. You know, my, my mind started settling down. It wasn't because my mind goes all the time. I even had people tell me, it's like, don't you ever stop? Like, no, my mind pretty much goes constantly from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. So from two to four hours, it's just sort of meditative-like. And then from four hours on, more or less speaking, um, it goes kind of into a almost sort of a comatose state. Like I'm almost unconscious in the sense that I'm not really thinking and I'm not really paying attention. I'm just sort of running on autopilot, physically running on autopilot. Because at that point, my brain is, because your brain runs on glucose, and my glucose is running low by that, by four hours in, five hours in. And so I just sort of shut down emotionally and mentally. And you just kind of go. And it's literally like having really, really, really small blinders on. You literally only see where you're stepping in front of you. You don't admire the environment. You don't really see anything else other than to, you know, maybe paying attention to traffic. Um, And you just get really, really tunnel vision. And that's how you go. It's, it's a survival mode. And so what that taught me is that when you focus that deeply on something, that you can literally block out all distractions. You could do it intentionally or you can do it unconsciously, but you can block out distractions. So people talk about a life balance. You know, I want a work-life balance. That is the most idiotic thing I've heard anybody say. <laughs> There's no such thing as a life balance. Forget that idea because life balance is boring. Life balance is is not inspiring. You've got to go all in on something. So when you have a brand new baby, your life becomes about that baby for a while. And then regular life starts migrating back in. So the mom and dad nowadays, especially both of them stay home for a while and they take care of that baby. If you have a new business, that's like your baby. So you got to focus on that 100% of the time for a while until you get to a certain income level and a certain amount of policies and, and systems so that it will run more or less by itself. And then then you, you don't have to do that. You're learning a new language. Like when I went to Columbia, I took two hours of Spanish lessons four days a week, and I studied for two hours a day for four days a week. And I learned Spanish in 30 days. Not great Spanish, but conversational. Goodbye. You know, more than enough to get by, more than enough to get by very, very well. And then, I was, then I'm still mastering it to become totally fluent. I'm still working on that. But I'm not still studying two hours a day and then, then taking practice, you know, lessons two hours a day. So this whole idea of work-life balance is ridiculous. You've got to be um, intensely focused on what you want to master. Because if you don't, you'll never accomplish it. There'll always just be a, a wish. So it's that immersion. Like if you want to learn something, you got to put yourself into that thing 100%, get in there, 
and not do anything else for a while. Is that what you would recommend to somebody who maybe is in that position where like, hey, I've been in construction for 10 years and I know I don't want to do this anymore. What should I do next? Is that a good way? Is that a good method to just pick something and immerse yourself in it? Is that how you would recommend kind of finding your path? You can either immerse in it or immerse it in the sense of you do your job from nine to five or whatever it is. And then every moment after that, you go figure out what that purpose and passion is that you have. Immerse yourself in after that. If you can't afford to quit the job, if you don't have savings or some other means of income, and you, because I know it's, you know, it's unrealistic to say, you know, go quit your job. <laughs> Although it's not totally unrealistic, it's only partially unrealistic. It's unrealistic for some people in certain circumstances of life. But if you can't quit your job and focus purely on the thing that you'd rather be doing or finding that job, focus 100% of your time to find that job, then do it on the side and make that your, your extreme focus um, after work. Every waking moment you have pretty much that you're not working. Yeah, I think that's, the, that's an important distinction there is you don't have to quit what you're doing tomorrow to start following your dreams you can integrate those things and eventually you'll get to a point where your side hustle becomes your hustle. And I think a lot of people use that kind of as an excuse to say, well, I can't because I have a full-time job. I can't get out of that to just go do what I want tomorrow. So I, yeah, that's, that's great perspective on that. And, and the one, one um, clarification on that, you're absolutely right. You're totally right. But the idea is that your mindset is a hundred percent committed to finding that doing or finding the thing you want to do. So you got to be committed. So every waking moment that you have, you're looking for the new job or you're starting that new thing or you're starting the new business or whatever it is that you want to do. So if you want to learn how to play racquetball, then you go play racquetball every day after work. If you want to get healthy and fit before you go to work, you exercise. And when you get off exercise, uh, get off work, you exercise. And then learn how to cook food, learn how to eat really, really well. And then, then you'll lose the weight as if it's a normal thing for you, you as if it's natural. You'll become fluent in Spanish, fluent in racquetball. You'll, be, you'll have a, a business that creates $100,000 a year passive income or whatever the thing is that you want. But it's got to be the commitment to that new life. I love that. And so one of the things that that sparks for me is, let's say we pick something and we get to this point where for you, it's running across America. I notice for me that whenever I have a big goal like that, I overwhelm myself with all of the things that I could or possibly need to do to either get there or what it could become after the fact, right? Like, how does this build and expand? What do you say to somebody who has a lot of motivation, a lot of inspiration, but they get overwhelmed and don't ever get a chance to really take those first steps because they're, they're too much to do? Analysis paralysis can, can be tough, you know, being overwhelmed by things you, you might be able to do. And then I, I go down that rabbit hole at times too, especially when uh, I'm creating something new, like I'm creating a new product or something. I can get overwhelmed by it because, you know, I want to include all these different things. I got to list, I got to create this landing page. I got to create this new website. I got to do this. I got to do that. You know, I got to create all this. I got to do the videos. I got to do this. There's so much to do. And then I end up not doing anything for like a week. And so then I get to the end of the week. I'm like, what did I accomplish this week? It's like, oh man, this is horrible. So to not do that, <laughs> the idea is that you do the, take Take the biggest thing that will make the biggest difference and do that one thing. You know, focus on that one thing that's going to make the difference. So if I'm creating, say, a new program, you know, an online training program, if I create just the program, you know, the videos or the audios or whatever it is, and I focus on just the product itself, 
then I can focus on, and I do that and complete it. Now that will give me my talking points for the website. It'll give me the other things that I might need for to help create the rest of it. And so when you take rid of, get rid of that bigger chunk, then everything else will kind of fall into place and you won't get as overwhelmed as easily. And then sometimes you just got to like step back and say, whoa, wait a minute. What's the most important thing I need to do? What's the next most important thing to do? And then forget about the rest of it. Because once you take the first step, the next step will be revealed, as Martin Luther King said. You don't have to see the whole staircase. No, take the first step. The next step will be revealed because you don't need to see the whole staircase. I think that was his words. John Canfield talks about headlights driving at night, right? You can only see 100 or 200 feet out in front of you. But as long as you see that, the rest of it unfolds eventually. And it's very hard to trust that. Does that trust come from just knowing you're capable? Is it trusting the universe aligns? Where does that come from? There's, there's two different things here. One is you get confidence from experience. You, you succeed at things enough. So when I started speaking Spanish, at first I was afraid to open my mouth in Spanish because in Colombia, it's not really a tourist place. So nobody speaks English so much there. So you have to speak Spanish. And at first I was horribly afraid to open my mouth. So what I did is I got into the taxis and I would take taxis and I would do the same conversation every day. I'm from New York. Uh, I just moved here. And, um, and what I love about Columbia is this, this, and this. And so I would repeat that conversation two, three times a day to taxi drivers. And who cares if the taxi drivers understood me or not? I'm never going to see them again. But the funny thing is, is that I would start seeing the same taxi drivers over and over. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, wow, your, your Spanish is getting good. And so you, you gain confidence from, you gain confidence from experience. And so you, you're doing that. And then the other part is you just got to have faith. You've got to choose that you're going to succeed. Like, you know what? I'm going to be an idiot while I'm starting, but I'm going to get there. I'm going to become a world-class speaker. I'm going to become an author. I'm going to have a podcast that has a million downloads uh, a month or a year or whatever it is that your goal is. You know, I'm going to leave this job that I hate. I'm going to go find a job that I love. And so I, I don't think everybody should have their own business. Um, if you have that calling, absolutely. But you shouldn't be in a job that doesn't light you up. Or it's got to pay you a, a whole ton of money <laughs> to, to put up with that, that mis to justify the misery. And I know people like that, they're making two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year at a job they hate but they're making enough money that they could use their free time in, in creating a life that they love outside of work. So is that message, because you have kids and they're, as they grow, I've heard you on other podcasts say that you don't necessarily want them to go to college. What's your instruction to them as they're kind of going through this self-discovery in the early stages of it, right? Like they don't know that that, that self-discovery is going to evolve a bunch of times between now and as they get older. But as they're going through that first step of trying to define who they're going to be in the world, what's your guidance to them? We can, we can go down this rabbit hole. This is, this is, a, this is a dangerous one. I, I think our school systems are broken in the sense, not broken in, to, in totality, but they're broken in the sense that they're still teaching people to be good factory workers. And our factory workers might not be going and building Henry Ford's car anymore but it's to go to an office or it's, it's to, to get in line and stay in line and do what, whatever that job is, whatever that position is. And it doesn't matter if you're a chiropractor or if you're working in a corporate office, we all have this concept, like we have to work from nine to five and we've, we've got to do the, we got to get by the house. We got to have this family schools teach you because how else are you going to teach 30 little kids in a classroom, except for keeping them all going in the same direction. 
There's no way around it unless you, you go to a private school that has very small, you know, like six kids in a class. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's an unfortunate result of the, the, the institution that it has to be. But there's no reason why we have to work 40 hours a week. I can't remember the last time I worked a nine to five job. It's, it's been 30 years or something, 20 years probably at this point that I've worked a regular job. You know, I've either worked more or lately it's been working a whole lot less. Why can't I work 20 hours a week and make three times the amount of money I would have worked at a, at a regular job or 10 times the amount of money? What's the reason saying we can't do that sort of thing? Why can't you work a few years, create an automated source of income or nearly automated anyway, and, and be able to make $150,000 a year and you don't have to work at all except for maybe a couple of hours. I got friends that do that. They built their business. It's coasting for them. It's very successful. They check in on their team a couple hours a week, and that's all they do. And their life is almost complete freedom. So why can't we have that instead of going nine to five and working for somebody else for 40 or 50 years to eventually get to the so-called prize of retirement to be too old to really enjoy life at that point? Right. So, yeah, I tell my kids to... If you want to go to college because it is alignment with who you want to be, fantastic. The money's already put aside. They can go to most any school that they want to. But if you don't want to go to college, then you're going to do something. You're going to either start a, a business. You're going to go mentor with, or um, not mentor, but um, uh, intern with somebody. So you, can, so you can go learn some neat thing. Or you're going to go travel the world or, or go work for or, or go volunteer for some organization. So you get some sort of really amazing life experience. And so they can take that money and use it towards starting a business or traveling the world or doing whatever they want, as long as it's got a purpose to it. They're not sitting in the basement playing video games. That is not happening. What do you think is the biggest roadblock for the average person on adopting that mindset? Fear. It's fear that shows up as procrastination, distraction, uh, doing something that they, they don't want to do, not taking the action. So fear is like, we talk about this thing as uh, fear. Fear doesn't show up as like this whole thing that I'm afraid. Like a, uh, a guy comes to you with a gun and points it into your face. That's a legitimate fear. Every other emotional fear is a construct of your imagination. Um, it, it's danger is real as Will Smith in that one movie that he had with his son. You know, danger is real, but fear is imagined. And so we have all of these fears that show up in different ways. But the biggest fear, two things that the two of the biggest fears that we have is, as people are embarrassment and, and fear of rejection, which embarrassment is a form of a fear of rejection. So it really comes down to fear of rejection, which ultimately comes down loss of connection or slash love. And so if I do something stupid and I fail at it, I'm going to lose face with my community. My family isn't going to love me. Or if I succeed really big, then I'm going to lose connection with my family or they're, they're, they're going to be jealous of me, which that also happens. So a lot of people are afraid of, of success because they're afraid that they're going to lose the love from their family. And that's another big one. So what can we do to adopt that mindset that fear is not going to own me and I'm going to get past it? What, what's the first step to getting past that fear? Saying screw what other people think. <laughs> And I say that jokingly, but it's, it's true. When you can, you need to work on yourself first. It always comes down to working on yourself, working on your mindset. You have to evolve as a person because if you don't, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over, you'll always get the same result. 
which actually isn't true. If you keep doing the same thing over and over, you'll actually get a worse result over time because of atrophy. And so if your income stays the same, so if you imagine if you're making 20 years ago, you're making $40,000 a year. Imagine now 20 years later, you're still making $40,000 a year. Can you still buy the same amount of groceries, drive the same kind of car and own the same kind of house? You can't because, because of inflation. And life is like inflation. If you do go the same level, you'll get worse. So physically, if you're, I'm, I'm 180 pounds. If I stay 180 pounds all my life, by the time I get into my 70s, 180 pounds is now a fat person. Right now, I'm lean and I'm fit and I'm healthy because I'm working out. But as you get older, your body atrophies naturally unless you do something to counteract that. So unless I'm working out a little bit harder all the time, I'm going to naturally atrophy into a fat person because biologically, that's what happens to the human body. If your bank account doesn't continue to grow, inflation will grow faster than it and you'll become more and more broke over time. Relationships are the same thing. If you don't continue to grow your relationship with your spouse, eventually your relationship's going to get worse and worse and worse. You're going to be two people living in the house that don't even know each other anymore. So we have to work on ourselves more than we do anything else. It's always about personal growth, and that's learning, it's meditation, it's physical, it's, it's everything, spiritual, it's everything about it. You have to continually grow. And when you do that, the main thing, one of the best things you can do for yourself is work on your own personal confidence, to answer your question. Working on your own personal confidence. And when you work on your own personal confidence, that means not worrying about as much what other people say. Now, a lot of people say, oh, don't worry about what other people think. We're humans. We, of course, we're going to worry about what other people think. But the idea is to minimize the effect that has on your life. So to be bold enough, to be strong enough, confident enough to be able to take the action you need to take and not let what other people think about you hamper you going forward, slow you down from going forward. Because it's not about not having fear. It's about taking action in spite of the fear or the discomfort or the embarrassment or whatever it is. Uh, the the word that keeps coming to my mind as you're saying all of those things is intentionality. You have to be intentional about those things. If you're unintentional, inflation wins and atrophy wins. If you're intentional, you get to be ahead of the curve. That's a great way to look at it. I've never thought of that word uh, in this conversation. That's just a perfect word. Is absolutely. And you should be intentional about everything you do. But you don't need to, like the, the headlight example you were using before that, that uh, Jack Hanfield uses, you don't need to see how the, the whole distance to get there but like, I know I'm going to become an even better speaker and authority in the world. So I know where I'm going, but I don't need to necessarily know how I'm going to get there. I don't need to know if it's going to be through books or if it's going to be through podcasts or if it's going to be through um, videos or whatever it is. That kind of stuff you figure out along the way, but the intentionality of I'm going to end up here one day. So one of my goals right now, as we talked about before, is to have four homes in four different countries so I can learn four different languages fluently. I know I'll get there somehow. I don't know which countries yet. I don't know how I'm going to buy them yet. I don't know, you know what format that's going to come in. Maybe I'll buy them in an Airbnb amount, or maybe I'll just timeshare them or, or some version of that, buy a portion of it with somebody else. I have no idea how it's going to happen yet because I haven't found the homes and, and found the structure that works for that particular place. But I know I'll get there. And so if you want to be a great parent, how do you be a great parent? Well, go read some parenting books. Go talk to parent, other parents that are good parents to become a great parent. You want to lose weight? Go talk to people who are healthy and fit that was fat and figure out how they lost all that weight and became healthy and fit. Now, people that have been fit all their life, while that's a great example, find out from people who have actually been through your journey with the intentionality, I'm going to be healthy and fit. It's a great word. I love that. 
I think you hit on something there too, is that network of people that we surround ourselves with and the impact that they have, even if they're not in your closest group of friends, like you might not have the healthiest group of friends, but don't take advice from those people if they're not living the life that you want to live. Go find the people that are doing the thing that you want to do and get their input and watch how your growth changes almost overnight. You literally can transform your life in in a radically short period of time, like overnight, like in one day. You could do it today. So if you're in a, in a really bad, say, let's say you're in a bad relationship because a lot of the clients that I work with, the, the men are either about to go into a divorce, they're in a divorce, or they're just coming out of a divorce. It's, uh, it's frequent. Um, their business is starting to fall apart, and it's all because their personal life is falling apart. And so we fix the mentality, the mindset around the event they're going through, and then the business starts to take off. And at the end of it, they end up always end up making more money than they did before the, the everything started. And so the idea is that if you're in a toxic relationship like that, as an example, is you've got to fix it. And if it's too late to fix it, then you got to move out. That person's got to move out or you've got to move out. You've got to make that separation from that toxic environment because you'll never be able to be happy or successful if you're in a toxic environment. And that toxic environment could be work. You could be at a job that you hate and your boss is a complete jerk and giving you a hard time. Or, or the people that you work with, your coworkers, they're all you know, horrible people for one reason or another. There's a terrible culture in the business. Quit. Or don't quit, but start looking for that job if you need to keep the job until you find another job and then quit the moment you get another job. But you've got to be out there looking for the other job because it's not going to come to you. Nobody's going to come there you or know, knock on the corporation door and say, hey, who's not happy here? I'm looking to hire people who are not happy. Come with me you know, on the Pied Piper and going to leave and going to have all these little people follow them. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to get into, and I'm glad you mentioned this, the toxic environment. Sometimes that toxic environment is internal. Your own self-talk, the way you tell your own story how do you talk to yourself and what are those, do you have some self doubts that you got to work yourself through and what does that process or system look like? That's a really good question. Important question too. The, we all have a certain amount of internal toxicity or negative thinking anyway. Um, and what you need to, first thing you need to do is realize is, well, where does that come from? So if I have a, a toxic thought of, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never do that. I'll, I'll, I'll always fail at that. I'll never succeed or I'm not good enough, some version of that. Like, okay, well, if you just thought or said, I'm an idiot, I'm not good enough, why did you say that? And if you said that, where did it come from? Do you actually believe it, which may or may not be true, but where did that come from? Did, did I, do I actually think that, or did somebody say that to me enough times, which is often the case, you have a parent that's not a great parent because their life is a mess, and so it's hard for them to be a great parent because they're trying to figure out their own crap and they end up being a bad parent. And so you hear all over and over, you know, you're, you're not good enough. You're never going to amount to anything. You know, you're always a loser. Or when I was running across America, I was, as I told you, I was giving speeches every day. And I remember stopping for a talk in East Texas. Um, I'm sorry, West Texas. So I was out in West Texas. I'm giving a talk to a school, a high school. And there was, I don't know, 600 kids in the, in the, in the auditorium. And after I give the speech, I would give out a book to every one of the audience members. So the kids would line up and I'd sign their book and they would come up and they would usually say something and ask a question, whatever. And so, but there's this one girl off to the side, you know, I could see her standing way off to the side by herself. She's a little heavy set, frumpy, kind of dirtyish a little bit, you know, clearly not coming from a good home life because she's not put together like the rest of the kids. 
And when all of the other kids left, this this kind of frumpy dressed girl comes up to me and, and clearly waits until everybody passes. And she comes up to me. She says, you know what? All my life, my mom's told me, you're never going to amount to anything. You're a piece of shit. Now get the F out of my house. And that's what I've heard for all my life as long as I can remember. But after hearing you talk, I realized that someone else's opinion of me doesn't have to become my reality because that's what I would tell the kids. And from that moment on, I, I don't know what happened with her because we didn't stay in contact, but hopefully that was a transition point for her, for a new trajectory in life. Now, most of us don't have a parent that that's that, that bad, but they could say things like, really, you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? You know, some sort of the backhanded compliment, if, if you will, you know, sort of the, it's, it's a way of saying you're an idiot without saying you're an idiot. <laughs> Like I'm almost conforming you to the, the box that they know. Yes, exactly. It's like, you know, I'm thinking about starting my own personal training business. You know, I'm not going to go coach people how to be healthy and fit. Why would you want to do that? I had a client that was, this is their story. That, you know, she would go tell her dad, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm becoming a, I'm learning about nutrition. I'm learning about fitness and I'm going I'm to go get clients and I'm going to run my own personal training business. And her dad was like, why would you do that? Why would you leave your corporate job? You have a good job. It pays good money. It's like, dad, I'm not happy there, but you've got a good job. Why would you want to leave? Like that? I hate my job, <laughs> but it's a good job. <laughs> but eventually she did leave. Yeah. It's kind of like when you say, I want to open a brewery. <laughs> the same effect. What did, what did, what did they say? I mean, a, a lot of people, and, and they totally support me, but a, a lot of people, I got the, the question so many times, why would you leave something so sure for something so risky? And it just wasn't that risky to me. The, the risk to me was being 65 and 40 years into a career that I hated. That's the risk. And that's what I told people. One of my goals is to own a winery one day. I want to own a winery with a conference center and a coffee shop and a restaurant. So I basically want to create like a little business commune around where I can have my businesses. So instead of me traveling to other speaking events, people travel to see me. And then I have this, this little community of things that, that make me happy. And wine's one of the, I, I don't drink beer. I do drink beer, but that's not my favorite. Wine is my favorite. And so that's what I want to have. But if I was a beer guy, it would, it would totally be a brewery with the same sort of complex. I, I love this. You're putting out all these goals that are still out there for you. And you're talking about how you work through them. Earlier, you mentioned that you still have this lazy side of you. I, I'm big on systems. And some of those things are committing to something like for me, my first marathon, that was a pulling motivator. I already signed up for it. I spent the money. It forced me to put systems in place to accomplish that. What's your day look like to keep you inspired, motivated? Do you have systems that can be repeatable that anybody listening can be like, you know what, that'd work for me. That would help. My days are actually, generally speaking, quite boring, except when they're not. And then they're super exciting. <laughs> so so it's, I used to be an EMT. I would volunteer as, as an emergency medical technician with the ambulance. And we would sit around and there'd be nothing would happen for hours and hours. Occasionally would even be for days. 
And then all of a sudden you get like five calls back to back and, and you go into warrior mode, you know, you got to go save the world. And so you have a lot of boring time. So in my business, my boring time waiting for the call is writing, you know, being on the computer, working on the websites, creating new programs, you know, that's stuff that's not exciting. But then I get on a podcast like this with you guys. And, you know, this is some of my exciting stuff. I get on stage. It's some of my exciting stuff. I go um, travel the world and go do these video stuff. And, you know, that, that's really cool. That's the exciting stuff. But my whole life isn't, you know, all these great, exciting things. There's, you got to have the mundane things because the mundane things make the other things work. And the trick is that you don't have to do the mundane things yourself necessarily, maybe in the beginning. But then the idea is to start handing off the, the boring things you don't like to other people. So when I was a carpenter way back when, and I owned my own houses, I owned houses, lots of houses, actually, when I was very young. So I was buying houses when, when like young twenties, people were buying like cars for their first time or whatever. I was buying and flipping houses. Like, like they were, you know, like you were buying, I don't know, baseball cards or something. And so I would, but I would have to cut the lawn. And so in the beginning I was cutting the lawns of these different properties I own. And so I'd have to work all day and then I have to go cut the lawn at night. And every time I had to cut the lawn, I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. This absolutely sucks. I don't want to do this. And then one day, this, this little old Italian guy comes up to me with a broken Italian accent, just like my family. And so it's just like, your lawn here, it needs to be cut. I cut it for you. You like that? Yes. And I was like, oh, you, know, you know what? I don't know if I have the extra money. I don't know if I want to do it. First one free. I do first one free. You like, I do more $25 a week. And so I let him cut his lawn for free. And I came home that first day and the lawn was cut way nicer than I ever did. He edged it. He cut it. He cleaned it. Oh, it was beautiful. Blew the grass out of the way. This lawn looked like, oh my God, this looks like a house now. And he comes back. He says, you like? He says, I like. Go ahead. <laughs> and that was a super important lesson because the next one was having somebody clean my house. Why should my, my wife at the time, my wife and I at the time, we're spending three, four hours every Saturday cleaning the house. And we would do it together. And then after years of this, I'm like, honey, learning the lesson from the, the landscaper, you know, I was like, honey, I'm going to hire a cleaning person. I don't want somebody else in my house. They can't do it as good as me. Like, honey, let's try it for two weeks. If you don't like it, we'll never have anybody back again. But if you like it, then we'll talk about it. And after two weeks, he's like, I am never cleaning my house ever again. <laughs> Why should we do the things that we hate? Maybe in the beginning we have to because we can't afford to do it or maybe we need to learn the skill or maybe we need to, maybe we think we're going to like it, but it turns out we actually don't like it. So start hiring things out as soon as you can. And so now I'm actually uh, talking next week. I got a call with a new VA company for that reason. I have VAs, but I don't have a VA team. And so I'm talking to a VA team that is designed for people like me and my business. And that's what they do. They charge a lot more money than I'm paying now, but they have a system to do it. So I don't have to manage several different people. And so that's, up. if they're what they seem to be, that's who I'll hire now so that I can just, you know what, here's my video recording, go do this, this, and this, here's my this, go do that, and they handle it all. Man, that's exciting to get to that point, but it wasn't always like that. Whatever you got, well, let's back up a little bit because when you decided to run across America, were you at that seminar before then? Have you decided that you wanted to become a speaker? Was that intentional? Obviously, because you were speaking at all those events. Was that your catalyst to set this up and be like your big claim to fame that allowed that to happen and build into all of this? Or 
was that not quite that strategic? Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> it, it wasn't. It wasn't totally that strategic, but it sort of was. I was. I had already several years earlier. I started reading the books. I started going to seminars. Started uh, hiring coaches and doing different things. Uh, I was learning how to speak at night. I would go to. So I, I, I was a carpenter. I had no idea how to speak in front of an audience whatsoever, other than seeing my dad, which I had never spoke in front of an audience like him. I didn't know anything about it. So I joined Toastmasters because I had heard about Toastmasters before from a friend. And, was, and so then I was like, okay, let me go see what this is about. So I showed up at a Toastmaster meeting and I was like, wow, this is really cool. You get with a group of people, very warm, friendly environment. Everybody wants the same thing to become a speaker. And so you're in a great positive place in alignment with my goal. So I joined a Toastmaster group, but I realized meeting once every other week wasn't going to make me a good speaker nearly quick enough. So I joined five Toastmaster groups that first two months. One of them, I had to travel 90 minutes. Another one, I had to travel 60 minutes. And the other two were about 30 minutes away. And then my home club, which was only, I don't know, 10 minutes away. So I would travel. And so I was going to a Toastmaster group at least twice a week, sometimes three or four times a week, depending on how schedules worked out. And so did I become a better speaker quicker than everybody else? Massively faster, radically faster. And they're like, how are you getting so good? Because not all of them knew I was speaking at all these different clubs. It's like, how are you getting so good? I was like, I'm practicing at home. <laughs> I, I didn't tell anybody right away. <laughs> Just got a mirror. Yeah, you, you know, you don't have to let everybody know your secrets, at least not right away. And because I didn't want to be judged on it, because once I started telling people I'm going to five clubs, they're like, oh, well, that's why you're becoming so good so fast. Or they're like, how can you be that committed? And so every club was at night. So I was leaving, you know, I would work all day. And then I would go and I'd go to these different clubs several, you know, two, three nights a week. So I could become a great speaker. So then I'm becoming a great speaker. I start getting small gigs. I'm doing free things, getting donations and, and honorariums and things like that. Nothing really big, but I'm getting real world experience. Um, and then I get a $2,500 gig. So I went from like 100 bucks a gig to 2500 in one step. And I kind of bombed that one. It wasn't bad, bad, but it was definitely leaning towards bad because I was freaked out about speaking to an audience that I'm getting paid for. It wasn't the audience that freaked me out. It was the idea I was getting paid. And I was getting paid by one of the best speakers in the world who hired me to do a, a one session within his event. And so I felt like I failed him. I certainly felt like I failed me. And I definitely felt like I failed the audience. And so from that moment on, I was like, I will never let that happen to me again. I'm going to practice. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be ready. And yet it happened again because this is life. You have an off day. You know, you whatever things, weird things happen. You have an off day. But then it was after that $2,500 speaking event happened, then I got a couple other small events. Then I think I got a $5,000 one. And then I kept hearing over and over from my mentors. Like, if you want to charge top dollar for your speaking, you have to just decide to charge top dollar for your speaking. So I had run across America. I had that experience and all those big speaking events I thought were going to magically appear after my run across America. They never showed up. Nobody called me. Nobody wanted to hire me. The ones that did hire me were all these like little events and I was getting it. And so when all my mentors are telling me, if you want to charge more, you have to charge more. And so my rates went from $2,500 as my set fee to 13, I'm sorry, 11,500 for my fee. And I get a call one day because I had been on uh, TEDx, two different TEDx's. And I had been on TEDx and I get a call one day, you know, I saw your TEDx event. You know, we want to hire you. We got this event. There's 200 people where this, that, you know, they email all the details. 
And they're like, how much is your fee? So I go, oh, and I shut up. <laughs> I can barely get the words out of my mouth. Yes, literally, I'm covering my mouth. I'm like, <laughs> and it seemed like an eternity. It probably was only like three seconds. I don't know. But it seemed like an eternity. It seemed like it was five minutes later. She's like, okay, our budget's actually 13000 so that works. Can we buy your books too? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you decide, you're like, yeah. When I, got off, when I got off the phone, which the call was only like five more minutes after that, when I got off the call, I was literally doing a jig around the house. I got the answer. It's crazy. I'm like, holy crap, I got 11,500 plus books. And then shortly after that, I went up to 13,500 plus books. So my, my, my speech, speeches now average about sixteen to $17,000 for a talk that lasts about an hour, hour and a half, depending on the event. And then my travel time, of course. So if you would have told me when I was a carpenter making maybe 50 bucks an hour uh, on the better years, um, and then I was flipping houses and occasionally making you know, $10,000 or $20,000, but it would take me months to make that. Um, sometimes I would make more. But if you ever told me back then when I was swinging a hammer for a living, I'd get paid almost 20 grand for a one hour talk, I would have thought you were insane. I thought you were on drugs, you're smoking something that's really, really, really strong. And I never would have believed you. But yet, that's where I ended up. And it took me, so to give you a little backstory, to so get from zero speaking to making that money was probably seven years. So that was like six years of making almost nothing. <laughs> To, to all of a sudden, the seventh year was like, woohoo! Yeah, and I think that's something that Travis and I talk a lot about is in his business, doing the brewery, and that's how, why we started this, is people just started coming to him being like, you're so lucky, you've got this multi-million dollar complex and all this stuff's coming, but they don't see the crap you went through over those seven years to get lucky. Yeah, and that that's what I say, people see grand opening, they don't see what it took to get to grand opening. They don't see what it took and they don't, they don't know the risk that it took, financial risk, emotional risk, the, the physical risk, all of that. Yeah, all of it. All of it is, you know, then, and so you do a speech for 16 grand and people say, wow, Croy, he's so successful. He's so lucky. He, you know, he just came out of the gate swinging. Well, really, that was six weeks or six years of work under the radar that nobody saw. And that's what it takes to get to the place where people can see you. But nobody, nobody wants to recognize all of that under the uh, radar stuff. And I, I think that's an important aspect of this is you have to be able to do, or you have to be willing to do the work that people don't see and that you're not getting recognized for to get to the place where people say, wow, Corey was in the right place at the right time. He got that gig, right? Like it's not, it looks like it happens in a vacuum, but really it is this long drawn out, like strenuous process to get to that point but nobody nobody sees that they don't see it and they they think that it's just just very successful i was watching um i don't know a couple days ago i i turn on my tv in the background so i have my my desk on one side and i have the tv on the other side and i keep the tv on these youtube videos that shows these multi-million dollar yachts these multi-million dollar homes these three hundred thousand dollar cars and so i keep and it has the music on in the background it's just kind of cool motivational stuff i have on the background well, one of the videos that came up as an option was talking about millionaire marriages. And so I clicked on that. I was like, okay, I'm curious, you know, who's the millionaire? Who are they marrying? And, and the whole thing. So what the story was about was actually was a very negative position about when you have money, it's so hard to find somebody because you don't know if they're after your money. You don't know if they really love you. You don't know if they have some ulterior motive. 
And then, you know, so this whole crazy thing about it. So they talk about these marriages and then the divorces that happened. And so the whole thing was like, why would I want to be a multimillionaire if this is what's going to happen to me? And, you know, they're talking about a guy that gets married three times and each wife took half of their money. Why do I want to get, become a multimillionaire? Why do I want to get married three times? And, you know, so the whole thing was negative. And I'm watching it. At first, I'm watching it. And all that negative talk starts with my head. It's like, yeah, man, that's rough. Yeah, I don't want to be a millionaire. I don't want those kind of problems. And then I caught myself. I'm like, holy crap, what am I thinking? This is ridiculous. They're showcasing like the worst of the worst of the worst. When I'm in Colombia, I do social work. I go into the roughest neighborhoods in Colombia, which by default then are the roughest neighborhoods in the world. And so I don't know if I go there at night, but I go there during the day. I'm not, I grew up in and out of New York City, so I'm used to the, the way these rough places can be. And back then when I was a kid, New York was a pretty rough place too. And so when I go to Colombia and I bring food and clothes and stuff to these people, uh, part of an organization, not just me alone, and I go in there and there are a lot of really bad people there. They're shooting each other up. It's gang fights. It's violence. You hear a guy beating on a girl and parents that are horrible yelling at their kids and beating their kids and stuff like that. You see that in the poor communities. Then you go to the less poor communities where they're just sort of like we would call middle class, like lower middle class. And you see the same sort of things, but there's a little bit less of it. At least it's not out in the open. Then you get to the middle class and the upper middle class. It's hidden better, but you still see the same jerks. And then you get to the really wealthy communities. Uh, in, in Medellin, it's called Poblado. That's the community that's a lot of wealth. You see the nice cars. You see the fancy clothes. You see the beautiful people. And you still see jerks. You still see the rich moron that's smacking his girl. Like, like not literally smacking her, but treating her badly. You know, being a moron to her. You see these idiot Americans that come down there for the, the beautiful girls that are hiring the prostitutes and, and they're well, in the sex trafficking trade and they're, they're on, you know, participating in that. You know, they've got complete idiots there. You know, so supposedly rich American idiots that are there. It's not because they're American. It's because that's the idiot that's come in there to, to use the prostitutes and it hires, happens in Thailand and it happens in all these other places too. Point is, across every social economic class, there are idiots and that TV show talking about the billionaires and millionaires was highlighting the idiots. But most every single friend that I know, and many of them are making you know, good money, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. I don't have any personal friends that are billionaires, but I have friends that are making tens of millions of dollars. And everyone that I know is a great guy or a great woman, donates money, starts churches, uh, schools in different countries, and they do all these amazing, great things. I don't have one friend that has a lot of money that's a moron like the, the ones that are on TV. And I don't know if those guys were morons. Maybe they just, who knows? But yeah, I don't know what their story is. But the show presented rich people as jerks. And so why would you or I or anyone else want to be a millionaire or a billionaire if that's what I'm going to end up being like? I'm going to be this idiot that treats, that only cares about money and the stupid jewelry and fancy cars and yachts and whatever else. Why would I want to become that person and become morally corrupt? Is every billionaire morally corrupt or every multimillionaire? Of course not. And some of the most spiritual people I know are actually incredibly wealthy. You know, you bring up a really good point about what we're feeding ourselves. And in today's age of social media and with all the divisiveness in the world and all the craziness that's happening with the pandemic and social media's role in that. And the things that I don't think people understand is they actually have control. Like I find myself, I'll jump on Facebook and I will be mad in the first five scrolls, right? Like I'm just upset about something somebody said that I went to middle school with 20 years ago. And I'm like, 
Why am I doing this to myself? I can control all of this. What do you recommend to people that are finding themselves kind of in the dumps, finding themselves seeing these type of stories you're saying that all millionaires are corrupt, just reaffirming these negative behaviors and thoughts that they have, you know, maybe their parents gave them or these stories they were told. How do we get out of that loop? Well, it goes back to the conversation we were having before about, you know, if you're saying I'm an idiot, you know, I told you the story about that girl in uh, West Texas, you know, you, you, we get these, I don't know if we finished that conversation actually. So this is a good segue back into it. We learn these things from our parents, our teachers, especially now with Instagram and YouTube and all these other crazy things that are on there. Um, especially the young kids today, you know, young, young kids today, they're learning all these crazy things. Like the Kardashians are, are a, a model of who you should be. The Kardashians have evolved, some of them anyway, and have become better people. But in the beginning, their claim to fame was being the biggest jerk you could possibly be. And so if that's what you think, so, so when you, what, what phrases do you know of uh, about rich people? So for example, you know, you've heard the talk as uh, money doesn't grow on trees, rich crooks. Oh, that guy's rich. He must have, he must have uh, you know, stepped on other people to get there. He took advantage of people to get there. You know, so there are all these phrases that are about against money. And why is that? And well, some people will say, well, because it's more spiritually, it's more spiritual to not be rich, you know, more spiritual to be broke than it is to be rich. Well, who said that? In the Bible, some of Jesus' apostles were the wealthiest people of the world at that time. Well, who nobody talks about that. Why don't we talk about that? So, and, and there are other, there are actually, I have, 2,500 and some, I think 517, if I remember right, 2,517 references to money in the Bible. If God was talking about money that much, isn't it something kind of important? So, so the next question is, why is it important? So I think what it, what, what it all comes down to is the misquoted phrase of money is the root of all evil. And that's not the full quote. In fact, the full quote is almost a paragraph long. But the longer end of that quote is the love of money is the root of all evil. So those people, the Kardashians and, and the people that were on that TV show I was watching, that documentary, those were the people that were in love with money. Mm. Money isn't the root of evil. It's the mindset and perception of it. So when you hear a negative thing, to go back and answer your question, when you hear a negative thing like money doesn't grow on trees, I'm too broke, I can't afford it, um, things like that. Um, my friend pointed out to me the other day, I didn't realize this uh, a couple weeks ago. And I said something like, um, when I have enough money for that one day. So I was you know, probably talking about a yacht or something like that, some crazy big goal that I have. And so, he's, and he says, you know what you just said? That was a very negative thing. And I was like, oh my God, that's still creeping out of me with all of the mental work I've done. A couple things still sneak out on me. So I was like, okay, where did I learn that from? Well, growing up, I heard all the times we can't afford that right now and things like that, phrases like that. Okay, so I learned it from my parents. Where did my parents learn it from? Well, my grandparents went through the Great Depression. So, of course, they have that horrible mindset. And so I'm two generations away from that, but it's still filtering down through my parents, through me. And to some extent, it'll filter down through my kids for things that I'm not aware of and I don't catch some of my language yet, although I try to be very careful. But I'm sure the stuff will sneak out in front of them. So you have to first recognize that you're saying it, ask yourself if it's true, ask yourself where you got it from, and then decide what do I actually want to believe and who do I want to become? So those are the five things. 
And so when you realize like, okay, that's not what I want to believe. What do I want to believe? Then you decide, well, I want to believe that money comes to me easily. I want to believe that loving, romantic, beautiful, passionate relationships are easy. I want to believe that I can, I can have a job, I can have a business, and it's, it's fun and it's successful and it's less work than any job I've ever had before. Okay, so who do I have to now become to become one of those people? And then you start working at that and chip away. It took me six years, as you said, in absolute like silence to, to, to get to my first speaking gig that, that got paid. And then eventually, just one year later, I started getting paid the bigger money. Which as a side note, I don't really do the speaking engagements anymore. And it's not because of COVID or what's going on in the world. It's because I've decided that's not the business format that I want. And I'd rather be making money at an automated version, some sort of automated cash flow, than to be having to jump on a plane all the time. I still do it and I still love it, but that's not my main goal, which it used to be. Yeah, you actually said that you stumbled across that purpose. Are you saying now that just like as you've evolved as a human, that purpose has shifted for you? Like, can you do that? Can you just change your pulling purpose? Just, eh, that's not it anymore. If it's not changing, then you're not growing. Because as you grow, it, if, it may go in a similar direction, but you're, you're going to course correct a little bit uh, all the time. And you may find out, it's like, yeah, you know what? I don't really like this. Um, I have a, a friend, a great friend, great business, super, super guy, one of the, the most heartfelt men I've ever met. And he has a... a major business up in Canada. So he does seminars and conferences. And so I went up to his house. I stayed with him. He taught me his whole business. And he says, you know, go home now and do it. And then I started thinking about it. I'm looking at his life and how much he's on the road and the amount of work that he has and the amount of team that he has. It's like, I don't want that. I don't want to be tied to my business like that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I, it's amazing what he's doing, but that's not for me. And so I started shifting at that point. And then some other friends were on the road 300 days a year doing conferences, you know, one to the other, to the other, to the other. And so I started shifting out of that. Luckily, I did that because when COVID happened and shut down the world, my business wasn't affected at it, you know, really at all, because all of my business at that point was pretty much online. And so, you know, I have the memberships, I have the online courses, and I have all the other things that are going on. So it was a blessing before I knew it was even a blessing. So yes, absolutely, you're going to be evolved and shift. And if you decide you don't like something, the quicker you say no to something, the faster you'll get to something you do want. So talking about what you're working on now, before you kind of alluded to this, you said 60 to 90 days to transform yourself if you're putting like really intentional effort. That's my summation of what you were talking about. You're working on this transformation stuff now. What do you, just give us an overview. What does that look like? What does rapid transformation look like and what are you doing with it? Since COVID started, when COVID, uh, to give you a tiny bit of backstory on that, when COVID started and we all got locked down, I was in Mexico and the world was literally shutting down. And when I got to the airport, I was actually on a mountain, Mount Orizaba, and I was climbing the highest mountain in Mexico, just as the whole world like went into chaos. And when I got down off the mountain, so I go up the mountain, everything's normal. I come down off the mountain and there's nobody in the city. Like it, it's blank, it's empty. There's nobody on the streets and you're not even allowed to go on the streets the streets, or you'll get arrested. It's like, okay, this is potentially going to be bad. And so while I got on the first plane I could because at that point we weren't even sure if I'd be able to fly back to the U.S. 
And so I didn't want to necessarily get stuck in, a, in another country for six months or a year or who knows how long and be away from my kids that long and not have the option to go see them. So I jumped on the very first plane I could. So I, I get to the airport and it's like Armageddon. There isn't a, a single person in the airport other than like seven or eight other passengers getting onto the same plane I'm going on back to New York. There's no staff there. There's nobody. I mean, it was freaky. It was crazy that the Mexico City airport was totally empty. And so I jump on the plane. I'm flying back on the plane. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a while. And this is potentially not going to be pretty. Although at that time, I also didn't believe what was happening either. I was like, I think this is all made up and it's BS. But I wasn't sure, just in case this is going to be a while, what do I want to get out of the next three, four, six months, year, two years? Who knows how long this will go on? What do I want to get out of it? And that's when I decided I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to focus. I'm going to stay in line with where I want to be and I'm going to create programs and I'm going to write books and I'm going to do all this stuff. So instead of focusing on not being able to travel, what I can't do, where I can't go, I can't go to the restaurant. Instead of focusing on all the things I can't do, I was going to focus on what I can do, focus on what I can control. So as that, that old proverb is, is, uh, I forget the words actually, is is not worry about the things you can't control, but do the things you can from uh, AA. I forget what the words are exactly, but that was what the whole idea of is I can control this. So I rented a place, um, you know, went from a nomadic life to being in a home again. <laughs> and, and so you don't get the, this crazy idea like I'm, I'm some backpacking hippie traveling the world. No, I rent really nice penthouses and things like that. I stay in nice places and I stay there for a month or two and I move on to a new place. So I decided to rent a place and make business my focus and be close to my kids so I could spend time with them. And so I still, I'm out kind of in the rural area of outside New York City. I can still go out and run every day. I don't have to wear a mask pretty much anywhere but the supermarket. I've stopped going to restaurants altogether because I don't want to deal with it. And I'm making the best out of what it is. So in the process of all of this and studying what other people are doing and the direction business is going and how it's transformed through COVID and the lockdown, because as you know, businesses have radically transformed. Businesses have disappeared and other businesses have become booming businesses. So it's not that money's disappeared. Money has just shifted and moved. Unfortunately, some people get caught in that turmoil of change and transformation. But nothing is worse than it was before. Things have just shifted. And so some businesses are making ridiculous amounts of money while others are dying, which is unfortunate in many ways. But going forward, we'll see where that goes. But what I discovered is that I'm either letting people come coach with me you know, and pay big money, work me one-on-one, be part of one of my groups, which is much less, but still too expensive for some people. Or some people just aren't ready, whether they have the money or not. They're just not ready to say, you know what? I think I want to hire a coach or I think I want to do this, this bigger, longer program. It's like, what can I do to give people that is something they can do and they can do it completely for free? And so that's what I've been working on for the last couple of months is creating this 11-day transformation. So it's short enough that you can... Anybody can do it, but it's long enough to actually get some pretty good results in a very, very short period of time. And so it's, it's actually pretty exciting uh, that I can create something people who never heard of me before, like you guys have heard of me and that's why I'm on your, your podcast, but a lot of people haven't. So how do I introduce people to me and not try to like shove this program down their throat? You know, cause I want to be able to give back and reach a lot of people, but then also have coaching or whatever else you want to do with me if you choose to do that. You know, because here, here's the, here's the, uh, the uh, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the word, the, uh, the birth of this. 
not the word I was thinking of, but here's the birth of it. I'm thinking of a, a, a word from outer space, the, like when things form in outer space. You're talking way above my pay scale, man. <laughs> but the birth of it. So, so the birth of this was coming from, from that, you know, how can I help more people? And how can I be the, have the kind of business and be the kind of person that I don't have to do these weird, cheesy sales tactics? Because I've been involved with people and I've partnered with people and I've joint ventured with people. And some of them were kind of shady, slimy people. Like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That's gross. But then I met a couple other people that are totally legit, very authentic, very uh, moral, and, and not doing all these weird tactics. And their business is just as big as those guys doing the shady stuff. So I started moving in the direction of those guys that are doing the moral, ethical business that have just as big of a business as all those, those creeps. And so I'm moving, I started moving in that direction. And one of the things they do is create a really great program for free that just helps people. And the people who want to continue with you will, and the people who don't, well, they've got a great program for no cost. That's a long way of telling you that story. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, that's awesome because I think that I actually ties back to some of those things you were talking about earlier is that alignment, right? And we talked about the network of people you surround yourself with. And if you're working with these shady salespeople and it just doesn't feel right to you, they're almost making something that you love and you're passionate about toxic unintentionally. And you don't have to change the whole piece. Just what are the pieces that are toxic and modify those to fit into that alignment and what's important to you? That's a, that's a really good point is, is you don't have to fix everything. Just fix what doesn't work. Yeah. And if nothing's working, then fix everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that too. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's not that you're running away from anything, but it's what you're running towards. And if where you're living, the people you're with and the job you're at, if basically if your whole life is, sh then throw it all out and start over. It's the one thing that I have a hard time understanding people emotionally. Intellectually, I get it. But understanding people emotionally, that if your life is that bad, then why not just pack stuff up in your car and go move to someplace else and go start all over? And you'll go, you, if you hate where you're at, do some research. Find a place that you think would be a better environment for you. So I'll give you an example of how this is true. I used to live, it was actually not too far from here. This is before I started all my nomadic traveling kind of crazy stuff. And I was living in one apartment that was really nice. It was kind of not really upper, upper end, but it was a little bit on the luxury side. Nice pool, nice community. People were pretty good there. And I liked it there, but a new place was just being built and it was almost finished just two blocks down the road. And it looked really pretty in the pictures and I would run by and I'd see, I was like, oh, I got to check this out. They had an open house. So I go to this place and it was three stories. It was twice the size of my place. And it was only $200 more a month. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I can have all, you know, have all this extra space. I can make a whole floor to my office because I work from home. And so I was like, I can have this whole floor. It's going to be in my office. I can set my studio up here. I can have this here. I was like, oh, this is going to be so incredible. The house was beautiful, way a bit nicer than the one I was in. And it was only slightly more money. It's like, this is great. And then I started like calming down and it's like, but this place feels kind of weird. I was like, what is up with it? Now, my friend that was with me, I was like, what do you think about this place? Not the looks. Like, what do you think? What, do you, what kind of vibe are you getting? And she was like, yeah, I'm not so sure. I was like, yeah, I'm getting that too. And then we started walking around the little community. And the pool was smaller. I like to swim. I like swimming more than running, actually. And I was like, the pool was too small for me to swim. And then we met some neighbors, ones that had already moved in. 
And they're like, yeah, those people look kind of dodgy. <laughs> you know, they're kind of shady people. And so the vibe we were getting and the vibe we got from those people and the people confirmed that, you know, you read body language and the way they talk and everything. You see if it's the kind of people you want to be around or not. And not to be elitist at all, but, you know, there's certain kind of people you want to be with, certain people you don't want to be with. And these were clearly people that I didn't want as my neighbors. And so I realized that just two blocks away, a location can have such a different vibe. So imagine if you left cold New England, like I'm in, you know, I'm right outside New York City. What if you left cold New England, or you guys are in Colorado? What if you left cold Colorado if you don't like it? Colorado's more beautiful than where I'm at, but what if you don't like the cold? What about Austin? Or what about Jacksonville, Florida, Miami, New Orleans, San Diego? What if you went to San Diego? If you're gonna be homeless, San Diego's not a bad place to be homeless. Right. right. Uh, that's a great example. I always wonder why Colorado's got a very large homeless population. People end up here. And I'm like, man, I would be in a pier in Pensacola, Florida, just living on the beach, fishing. Have you ever heard of a guy named Andy Andrews? He's, he's a good one to look up. Watch his YouTube uh, talk. Andy Andrews, I think it's the seven secrets of success or something like that. Uh, seven something of success, I, I think it is. And so he tells the story of his life and his book is about it. I don't remember the name of his book offhand that tells the story. But when he went through a life transformation, if you'll call it that, life downturn, he ended up sleeping under a pier. I don't know if it was California, if it was Florida, wherever it was, but it was a warmer climate. And he ended up sleeping under a pier for a while and somebody gave him a book and he had nothing else to do. So he read that book and that book gave him the idea, just like I saw that speaker on stage that time, gave me the idea. It's like, wow, you can do anything you want. You can create the life that you want. You have that personal power inside of you. There's a gift inside of you. You know, so he had kind of a, a same story as, as me. And so that's when he started to change his life. Did he have a fancy home the next day or the next week or next month? No, it took him years to, to figure this all out. But that was his transformation. He was literally sleeping under the bridge on a sand, you know, on the sand under the bridge and then transformed his life from there. So no matter where you are, you can start over. But maybe you don't have to start over completely, but you start, as you said before, fix the pieces that are broken. No, no living under the bridge needed. <laughs> And so does this 11-day uh, transformation, what does it cover in 11 days? So, so what I, I do is, and it's 11-day 11 transform, 11 com. What I do in this is, is you get 11 different videos. So one for each day to work on a specific modality or a specific strategy tactic. So a modality would be a mindset thing. A strategy or a tactic would be something you do, uh, which could be mental or could be physical, depending on what it is. So some of the things we've talked about, you know, how do you increase your confidence? How do you get away from toxic people? That's one of the days is if, cause everybody's got to some toxic people in their life. So how do you overcome toxicity in your work environment, personal environment, or even yourself? And uh, how do you set goals? Which is a big one. Most people don't know how to set a goal. Um, we hear all about the smart goals and all this other stuff. It's all ridiculous. It's stupid. It's mediocre at best. And you're never going to succeed with smart goals. Portions of smart goals make sense as a whole thing. It's, it's idiotic. So we go through those kinds of things. So that at the end of the 11 days, you have these 11 strategies that build on top of each other to make a transformation. And within the 11 days, if you're doing everything and doing your homework, which is only a couple of minutes a day, if you're doing your homework as well, so this short video, 15, 20 minutes and 15, 20 minutes of homework, you'll have a transformation in just that 11 days. 
And for some people, it'll be pretty dramatic and other people, it'll be subtle. Depends on, you know, what you put in, you get out. And in this transformation, let's say, because we've talked a lot about money and career and stuff. What if it's a relationship goal or a health goal? Is that still relevant to this? Whatever it is, it's relevant. Yeah, because the mindset is, is the core of all of these things. So if you have a mindset that, that uh, money doesn't grow on trees, well, that's what you'll work on for the 11 days. And so that's one of the things is you work on, you choose one thing on the 11 days, you know, cause there's a lot of people out there and I was that person at one time. I didn't have enough money to go buy somebody's hundred dollar program or 200 or $2,000 program or whatever. So you can go through the 11 days over and over and choose a different thing each time. So if you're working on money one time, you do that. What if it's relationships? You work on that for the 11 days. Or what if it's fitness or health? You want to lose weight. You work on that for 11 days because the, the structure is the same for everything. So here's the beauty about it is that you learn the structure, then you can apply that to everything else in your life. And you just repeat the same thing. Just replace losing weight with great relationship or, or losing weight with making money or just replace it with being happy. If you just focus for 11 days on your happiness, maybe I should make an 11-day happiness transformation. <laughs> <laughs> he's creating as we're here i love it <laughs> so if you just focus on your happiness right now that in itself would radically transform your life because most people don't know how to be happy we're not taught this it's not natural you're not bored with this god-given tendency to be happy we're taught to protect ourselves and survive and to be negative because negativity helps keep us alive optimism doesn't keep us alive optimism helps us thrive so you have to change your mindset and the way your brain functions so that you can go into a place of thriving instead of surviving. And that's what the 11 days is about. I think I've never thought of it that way before. So more creation here is that, that the 11 days is about uh, converting your mind, changing your mind from, from survival mode, which is what we're born into, into transforming it biologically, chemically, and physically into a thriving mode. I need to write that down. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll send you the recording so you can capture that. That was beautifully put. I love it. I'm fired up. I can't wait to see it. So it's just to summarize it a little bit, the, yeah. my run, because we didn't talk about this before, and I'll make this really short. The run wasn't about running a marathon a day, going from a non-runner to a, to a runner and doing this great, amazing thing. I, I get it. It's cool. And sometimes I think about like, holy crap, I did that. I mean, it's just it's wild even to me. But what it's about is following your dreams, following your goals, creating a lifestyle you want and you love, and doing, becoming the person that you want to be. Because life teaches us, as we talked about, to just be average. And what do the average people get? 70% of people don't have $1,000 in their bank for an emergency problem, an emergency financial problem. 70, uh, 60 something percent of divorces end up, uh, marriages end up in divorce. 60%, 60 some percent of people are unhappy at their job. Do you want that common average life what the world teaches us to be? Or do you want to be intentional as you talked about Travis? And do you want to create a life and a lifestyle that you are excited to wake up to? Like you guys talked about, we all had previous lives and none of us were all that happy in them. They might've been okay, but they weren't exciting and thrilling. And why shouldn't we live in exciting and thrilling? Preach, brother. And I'm, preach. and I'm coming to get some beer with you, too. So when I start driving around the country again and, and looking for my new home, then I will stop in, in Colorado and come, come grab a couple of pints with you. Absolutely. Yeah, let us know. That'd be great. Croy, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. That was beautifully stated. Thanks for summarizing that. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it so much, taking your time, share, sharing your story. 
you continue to inspire. Thank you for the work that you do, sir. I appreciate being here with you guys. And just to remind everybody listening is 11daytransformation.com. Awesome. Any other place where they can find you on social or other ways to get in touch with you? Every, everything's my name, Croy Sather, but nobody can spell it. So <laughs> we'll put it in the you notes. Gotta, you got to follow the link on your note, on your page with the notes. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Croy. Thank you guys.